All right, we are in Genesis 44. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 38. Turn there. One thing that I did miss while I was in Louisville, Kentucky, was all the lizards. Don't ask me to explain that. It just seemed weird not to have all these little things scurrying about my feet. So, nonetheless, I know I'm a strange person. Let's hear God's word. Then he, referring to Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had had gone only a short distance from the city, Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this thing. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. He said to them, Why does my Lord speak such words? Sorry, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And as he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace. To your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. 
Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I might set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord." And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray. Father, we accomplish, sorry, you accomplish all of your great promises yourself. It is not by our might, not by our power but by your Spirit. The effectiveness of preaching rests not upon my wisdom, not upon my cleverness, not upon my wordcraft, but upon your Spirit who gives life to those dead in sin, who illuminates the Scriptures, who points us to Jesus to provide gospel consolation. And so I ask that you would send your Spirit to do these things according to the needs of those gathered here this morning. Show us mercy and grace that you might receive much glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite stories is Les Miserables. Not the play. I don't do musicals. I know some of you probably, that's your thing. You love musicals, you love that. I love the movies. Unfortunately, I forgot my copy of the movie at home this morning, so I had to watch one on Netflix to get things right, and it didn't have the parts I wanted in it. Those screenwriters, a plague upon my soul. Anyway, it's the story of a man called Jean Valjean, and Jean Valjean was taken in by a family, and he saw that the the widow and her children were starving, and so Jean Valjean broke the window to a bakery that he might steal a loaf of bread to feed them. And justice in uh, France in those days um, was such that Jean Valjean received 10 years hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. That doesn't sound very just now, does it? 
It wasn't just hard labor, but he spent 10 years in the galley ships. And it was there that he grew stronger. It was there that he learned to read. But yet, he was like a brute animal. When he was released from his years of hard labor, things did not initially go well for Jean Valjean, for he thought he would be free, and yet his passport, his, his papers, indicated that he was not free, but he was a parolee. He was still a convict, and he had to bear this and go to, to report to the police in a particular city. But everyone knew what he was. And he was met with scorn, with fear, and with hatred. And so, in desperation, he bursts into a house, not realizing it is the home of the bishop. The bishop who welcomes him in, who feeds him, offers him a bed for the night. And Jean Valjean returns the kindness of the bishop by stealing his silver. Guilt. Then punishment. You see, Jean Valjean was quickly apprehended. Without the the priest, the bishop, even knowing that the things had been stolen, he was arrested and brought back to the bishop. And we'll get back to that later. The big idea this morning is that reconciliation rests upon Jesus as our substitute. And the first part of this, we need to reckon with the reality that our self-righteousness often leads to rash speech. This will become clear as we kind of move forward. Last week we looked at the favoritism that was shown to Benjamin, and that was a, a setup for this final test of the brothers. He was trying to make sure that they experienced the favoritism, that, that somehow this another younger brother of Joseph, this younger son of Rachel, was given special treatment. He was going to see if they still harbored animosity toward the sons of Rachel. And so he sets up Benjamin to take the fall. He tells his servant to place a silver cup in Benjamin's sack to see if they abandon Benjamin to save their own skin. They depart. It's not too long when Joseph says, now is the time, let's bring the trap and see what happens. We don't know if the servant actually knew all of what was going on, but he was a faithful and obedient servant, and he goes and he confronts the brothers, similar to how Laban confronted Jacob so many years earlier. And he frames it this way. He says, why have you repaid evil for good? He points out the reality. He frames it within the context of the grace that these men had received. Because they had not just bought grain from this man, but they had received this lavish feast at his home. Similar to what Jean Valjean experienced before his crime of theft, he himself had received grace at the hand of the bishop, receiving food that he could not buy anywhere, receiving a bed out of the rain that he could not find anywhere. And so these men sinned against grace, says the servant. 
Our sin, brothers and sisters, is more serious than that of non-Christians in this respect. Precisely because we sin in light of the truth that we, we have, that God has opened our eyes to, the truths of the scriptures, the truths of the gospel, and we also sin in light of the grace we have received. In a sense, we ought to know better. <laughs> and yet, because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we still continue to wander and to sin. And so there's that sense in which our sin is a little more, is more serious. Because we know to a far greater degree the holiness, righteousness, graciousness, and love of God. Let's get to the divination cup. I believe this is part of the ruse. I don't think Joseph actually used the cup for divination, but it was customary for people of his, sta- of his status within culture to use the cup for divination. And um, does anyone here know how to do that? I'm glad you don't. Okay. And what they would do is they would have one liquid in the cup, uh, usually water, and then they would pour a second liquid, whether wine or oil, into it. And what would happen is they would look at the patterns and the shapes that emerge at the top of the cup. So this is uh, certainly cleaner than uh, looking at for signs in the entrails of animals. Much better than that. Um, but nonetheless, this is what they would do, and, and certain shapes would mean certain things. Okay, and, and so you would read those signs to divine certain things. And so Joseph is using this as sort of um, an ex- explanation as to why he knows they have stolen this. He is a man, he says to them, of great power not just politically, but spiritually. Then they speak very rashly. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. Then they add the others, and the rest of us will become your servants. But notice, I mean, theft is not normally punished by death. They speak rashly, foolishly, just like Jacob did so many years ago before Laban, placing a curse upon his wife who actually did steal the idols. James 1, I think is appropriate in this context. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so part of what James is saying is that our unrighteous anger leads us into unrighteousness. These men were angry that they would be accused of such a crime. And so instead of being slow to anger, they were quick to anger, and they were quick to defend, and they spoke rashly. They spoke unrighteously. And what drives such a thing is is self-righteousness. 
They had not spent time going, you know, let's have a conference. Did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? They don't know what the other brother has done. They're presuming, they're assuming exactly that they're above such a thing, that these men who sold their brother into slavery and lied to their father are somehow above such a sin as stealing a cup. We act as if we are above such things. But we have to remember that we still, though redeemed by the blood of Christ, if we are in Christ, we still have a sinful nature. We still experience common temptations. They are not beyond us. And sometimes those temptations result in actual sin. There is no sin that is beyond any of us in this room given the right set of circumstances. Now, some of you probably have already said, no, I wouldn't and you have something in mind, well, maybe you would. Maybe you wouldn't. I hope you never find out. But we shouldn't be surprised when we experience these temptations that are common to man. We shouldn't be surprised when people accuse us of committing sins. What we should instead is when we feel that that defensiveness rise up within us. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. We need to recognize that it is Christ who works in us by the Spirit to make us people who are slow to speak, who are quick to listen, who are slow to become angry. Okay, that is ultimately the work of Christ in us by the power of the Spirit that produces that. So our repentance recognizes we haven't gotten there yet because the, because what happens when we're accused is we're quick to speak. We're quick to defend. That indicates that we're not what God has intended for us yet. And we need to ask Him to continue to work in us to make us that person that reflects His own character. And so accusations of sin only surprise us because of our self-righteousness. Let's move on to the second part. And that is that the price of sin must be paid for reconciliation to take place. I left off a couple words. I was rushed that week. The steward wisely does not accept the brother's offer. He makes a slightly more modest proposal. He says, he who was found with it shall be my servant. The punishment is not death. The punishment is enslavement. The punishment is only intended for the one who actually stole the cup. He's assuming that they have not been in in cahoots with one another to do this. He's assuming that only one of them has done this. Well, he actually knows what happened, but, you know. As expected, with this dramatic sort of turn, which again, going from the eldest to the youngest, sort of leaving the suspense all the way through, you know, the brothers kind of hanging there going, you know, I don't know how this gold keeps showing up in the sacks, but I really hope that silver cup doesn't appear in my bag. Okay, you, you gotta wonder what they're thinking in this thing, and it, you know, and, and it's gonna, it's dragging out, and finally it gets to Benjamin, and there it is. 
the one they least want it to be, Benjamin. Their hearts must have sunk lower than the ground of the of Death Valley. They tear their clothes to express their shock, their surprise, their sadness over what has just taken place. I'm sure that somewhere in there there was a, how could you do this? To which Joseph was like, I mean, Benjamin was like, didn't put a thing in there. It's not me. It's not me. They return to Joseph's home, and they fall on their faces, humble and desperate. It is then that Joseph, uh, Judah, again, just like last week, mixing up all those J names, Judah takes the front. He begins to be the spokesman. He's not the oldest in the family, but he has taken that place of the most responsible and the leader of these brothers. And he begins to recount the tale of, of kind of how this whole thing took place. And one of the significant things that he says there is, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Not servant. He's alluding to what Joseph, supposedly, doesn't know about. The guilt of 20 plus years ago has now, in their minds, come to the surface. God, through this, is about to bring justice down upon their heads. That's what, they, that's what Judah thinks is going, is going on in his, this instance. It's time to pay the piper. I have not seen the movie Prometheus. I want to someday. But uh, uh, one Christian pastor had talked about it this way. There's the question that nobody ever asks. And that is, what if you actually meet your maker and you find out he has it in for you? That's essentially the plot line of Prometheus. That's their perspective. God has it in for them because they are guilty. God is about to undo their lives and ruin their family because of their sin all those many years ago. It is finally being brought to light. Judah understands this is precisely because he had his own sin uncovered before all. And he sees God working justice. But we see that only Benjamin will be punished, for only Benjamin stole the cup. It reminds me of Ezekiel 18. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And so what Ezekiel is talking about is that the, sin who soul, who, the soul who sins shall die. That you do not die necessarily as punishment for the sin of another. You may, unfortunately, be your death may be the result of the sin of another, but you're not dying for their sin. Only Benjamin, who stole the cup, shall suffer the consequences for having stolen the cup. 
But recognize here, reconciliation is not as simple as returning the cup. It's not, you know, sort of a mea culpa, here's the cup, and oh, by the way, we found all this uh, money in our sacks, here's that, are we even now? Can we go home now? That doesn't accomplish it. That doesn't work it. Jean Valjean was brought before the priest. If the priest said that he had stolen it, it was not enough for the, for the, the silver to be returned to the bishop. For because Jean Valjean was on parole, if he violated that parole, he would go back to prison with a life sentence. Sin is so serious. It's not just swept under the rug. It's not just lightly forgotten. It's not just, oh, that's not that important. Don't worry about it. Sin bears a price. The wages of sin, says Paul, are death. The price that must be paid is death. And Benjamin's slavery is just a picture of that. But here's the good news, because we really need that. Jesus is our substitute for our sin. Judah begins to plead for the freedom of his brother, and that, that should, it is meant to strike us with irony, because it was Judah who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And so the one who had the initial idea and pled with his brothers to sell him into slavery to make money now is pleading that his youngest brother would not be given into slavery. So, love the irony that Moses brings to this. Part of what his rationale is, as he does the equation in his head quickly on, the, on his feet, that if Benjamin does not go home, Judah will probably end up as Jacob's slave. So one way or another, Judah is going to be a slave. But in this moment, he decides it is better for him to suffer in Benjamin's stead than for his father to die from a broken heart. He's learned what it means to watch your sons die, and he does not want his father to experience this again. Judah has finally learned how to love. And so he says, let your servant remain instead. He offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin so Benjamin could go free. And this is pointing us to Judah's Judah's far greater descendant, Jesus Christ himself, who would be our substitute before, before a far greater throne than that of Pharaoh's. The one around which the seraphim fly and cover their eyes with their wings. The one of the most holy God. Jesus is our substitute there. He who knew no sin 
as Paul says, became sin. And in so doing, bore our sin, not merely through the existence of a slave, but through the giving of his life upon the cross, dying as a criminal. We have a hard time understanding that. Don't we, at times? It's not something that we see in our ordinary experience. And so it's really hard to, for us, I think, to fathom what sin does and what Christ endured for us. Um, you don't need to watch The Passion of the Christ. That was a little overdone, overly dramatic. But uh, we don't really grasp what Jesus did for us very easily until the Spirit presses it home through the Scriptures. We are guilty. We're liable to death. We need a substitute. We need the substitute to die that death. Imagine for a moment that you are Jerry Sandusky. And you have just been found guilty of over 40 counts. And you're never going to see the light of day. And someone says to you, I will take your place. That's what it's like. Let's get back to Jean Valjean as he stands before the, the, the bishop and being held by the soldiers, the, the police officers. And something completely unexpected takes place because the bishop says, Oh, he stole nothing from me. How silly you, Jean Valjean. You forgot the silver candlesticks. These are worth far more money and can get you so much more. I gave these things to Jean Valjean. Uh, the police officer, as any police officer would be, was completely confused. But what do you say when it's the bishop? And so he leaves. And in the, the version of, of this story that stars uh, Liam Neeson, the priest grabs him, and he says, by these things you have been redeemed. By these things, this money, you have been purchased back from evil. You have been purchased back from fear and from hatred. And now go and live a different life. That was kind of missing in the other version I watched this morning, or that part that I watched this morning. Peter, in his first letter in the first chapter, reminds us that we are not redeemed with gold or silver. We are redeemed with something far more valuable than that. And that's actually one of the themes that runs through the first couple chapters of that letter. The preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ. That it can remove the guilt that we bear. But not only that... It frees us from the worthless way of life that we inherited from our fathers. Meaning, He purchases us from the life of sin and brings us into this new life through the resurrection in which we are able to live the life of a new person, of a redeemed person, of a child of God. No, not perfectly, but 
he brings us out of the old man and into the new man as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so we're to partake of a different way of life. We're to live very differently if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ precisely because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or spot. This is the only substitute that has been provided for us, the only substitute that can pay our debt, the only substitute that can set us free, the only substitute that can give us newness of life so that we're not just doing the same old things over and over and over and over again. And so is Christ your substitute? Have you looked to Him in your guilt and said, I cannot bear the sin and you have promised to bear it for me? Would you do that, Jesus? If Christ is your substitute, then you have been ransomed from death and you've been ransomed from sin so that you can live that newness of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jean Valjean. As the rest of Victor Hugo's novel goes forth, is a different man. He ends up exchanging the silver for money. And he actually ends up becoming the owner of a factory and a benefactor for a town, a protector of its people. But Jean Valjean would be haunted by the law in Javert. Because the law always wants its pound of flesh. (laughs) But there's a picture of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, unintended by Victor Hugo, who was no friend of Christianity. And but because he's made in the image of God, he can't help but write this story that speaks about the struggle between law and gospel. The law cannot set you free. Only Christ can set us free. He is the only one who can do this. Jesus stands as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God for us, but He also rose from the dead for us. And so justified, He now gives us newness of life in the Spirit. Joseph's brothers are about to experience and enjoy a new lease on life. Are you walking in yours, your new lease on life? Or are you still mired in guilt and shame? The answer is always the same according to Paul in in Colossians. We continue to live the way that we received Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that even at the very beginning... You point us to the work that your son was about to do. The work that we needed him to do. And Father, we confess that because of the sin of our hearts, not only do we need that work every day, but we tend to forget that work every day. 
So I thank you that there are passages like Romans 7 and 8, Galatians 5, that reminds us of the struggle within our hearts. Will we follow the lead of the Spirit or the lead of the flesh? And I thank you that the Spirit is more powerful. That the Spirit calls us to something more beautiful. That even our sanctification is not accomplished by our might. Though we make use of the means of grace, but it's done by your Spirit. So help us to look to that work of the Spirit. To help us to put sin to death. And to give life to righteousness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.